Hey everybody, hey everybody, how are you guys doing? I'm Kellen Fabry and this is Venture Europe. Venture Europe is a series of conversations with entrepreneurs and investors where we discuss about the strategies, tactics, frameworks and failings that they have used and experienced during their journey. My guest today is Paul Murphy. Paul is a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners focused on early and growth stage investments in technology companies in Europe. Previous to Lightspeed, he was a general partner at Nordzone, where he led the investments in Hopin, Tier Mobility and Flink, among others. He was also part of BetaWorks, the creative group responsible, among others, for creating Giphy, the platform for animated GIFs acquired by Facebook, Bitly, the link shortener, and Dots, the beloved mobile game inspired by Ayoi Kusama. During this episode, we discuss his experience of building Dots at BetaWorks and how they got their first 1,000 users, the first meeting following with an investment in Johnny from Hopin, and the key traits of the entrepreneurs that he likes to work with. Paul shares some great lessons throughout the episode that any entrepreneur that wants to build products that users love can learn from. Please enjoy this great conversation with Paul Murphy, partner at Lightspeed. Paul, where should we start? You have been both on the entrepreneur side and on the investor side. Hence, you have a pretty good understanding uh, of the venture space. I suggest to begin with the story of you building dots, and then we can segue to your transformation into a successful investor. So please tell me the background story of how the idea of dots came to you and then walk us through maybe how you went from idea to MVP and then to acquiring the first 1000 users. Yeah, so the idea did not come to me. Uh, it came to my co-founder, Patrick Moberg, who is uh, just an incredible creative. He and I had experimented with building lots of things um, before Dots. And then he went on a trip with his girlfriend at the time to Japan and was in this town of Matsumoto, which was doing a retrospective of Kusama's work. And they'd covered the whole city in Dots. And Patrick kind of, it's the kind of person that can take inspiration from anywhere and then turn it into something cool. And he literally built something on the plane back, showed it to me. We didn't even know what it was. It could have been a, an onboarding experience, but it was sort of developed it into a game. That was kind of December of 2012. And then a few months later, we had the first version of the, the prototype of the game that we were beta testing. Got it. So how did you go about building the MVP to test it? Like, how did you go about from this concept taken from an artist to, to build a game? Like, which, which feature did you prioritize? We were building at the time out of a group in New York called Betaworks. And Betaworks was this factory of technologists that were just building lots of stuff. Some of them were art projects. Some of them were really, you know, we built like Bitly came out of there, the URL shortener which at, at one point was shortening a third of the internet's links. I mean, just some really crazy projects came out of Betaworks. The kind of ethos there was, uh, actually, we talked about this, fuck it, ship it. So you build something, put it in front of people, build it again, or iterate, build it, put it in front of people. Um, so that approach, we applied to Dots. And every week, we had a new build that we were sending, initially just friends and family, other people within Betaworks. And you know, pretty quickly, you can start to see that Oh, out of the eight things that we've given friends and family, um, there's this one thing that they're using a lot of. And it's not even like, like I remember my, my wife at the time was spending like 10 hours a week playing dots and she had never touched any software product I'd ever given her before um, beyond kind of initial demo. 
but there was other people that were doing that. So we knew there was something unique here. And then we just sort of tried to lean into that, understand what was driving that, and then just build out more features and more features. And then it was about three months of that kind of rapid iterations before we thought like, all right, we're ready to push this out there. And then we, we made it public. Do you remember what exactly was the feature that got people hooked with Dot? Where when you connect four dots in a square, you sort of see visual feedback. The whole screen kind of goes bright. We have these really amazing sound engineers that we worked with. They did this. If you had your sound on, you had this really kind of cool audio feedback and then haptic feedback as well. And then it cleared all the dots of that color of that square. So it was sort of this like heavy dopamine effect when you did that. And I think that once people realized that move existed, then they just tried to make lots of squares. And that's where the kind of addiction, I think, came from. Got it. And then how did you go about like from the MVP or from testing with friends and family to 500, 1,000 users? So what we did, we were building eight products at the same time. Dots was one. Giphy was another. There was a company called Poncho, uh, which actually Lightspeed invested in, uh, which was sort of a, a weather app for millennials, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, and it was a cat, of course, personified as a cat. <laughs> we had uh, anyway, some, some other this thing called Telecast, which was a sort of a viewing experience of just kind of video on, on YouTube. Um, anyway, we had built, we were building these eight things. And then we told this incredible journalist at TechCrunch, Jordan, that we would kind of give her exclusive look at these things one week at a time. So over the course of eight weeks, uh, she would write a little story on, you know, this product or that product. So some of them went, you know, pff, shut up and then just came crashing down. Giphy just kept growing. And Dots, interestingly, the, the day before that was happening, John Borthwick, who's the CEO of Betaworks, he was showing it to some people and he showed it to Michael Arrington. He, you know, a lot of followers and was more vocal at the time in the tech community. And he tweeted out that like, I've just seen something incredible. And then Jordan, when she put her article out on TechCrunch, she called it the most beautiful game she had ever seen. And I, I suspect that's probably one of the most, one of the more popular articles that TechCrunch has had, but it just went like wildfire uh, from there. So you have this um, experience in, in building products. When you look at the companies, and also now maybe we can segue also at um, your experience in Nordstone. So when you look at the companies, like what do you think some entrepreneurs do very, very well? And some entrepreneurs could maybe do a little bit better when building the product and kind of testing and see, see, seeing what works. Yeah, so I think most founders that, at least that the kind of founders that we tend to get excited about either investing in or getting close to investing in have true deep-rooted purpose behind what they're building. And you know, you, that comes out in that conversation. So that, that first conversation, you can tell, have they just reverse-engineered a market and they're sort of planning a path to exit? If they said, hey, there's a US company that does this, I want to build that for Europe. Um, or are they saying there's this fundamental problem in the world or some part of the world and we want to fix it or make it better? And so I think if you can get to that, just you know, from a storytelling perspective, so many things fall into place. Your product vision comes together much more clearly. You're able to recruit better people because they're sort of purpose and mission-driven people. Typically, you're able to raise capital more easily because the sort of fire in your belly comes across in those, in those pitches. Um, and then when you're marketing it to businesses or consumers or whatever, they kind of get hooked into. So part of it is like being a good storyteller, but I think more fundamental than that is is solving a problem that you really believe should be solved. 
Um, so I think everything cascades from that. If you can nail that, then everything else comes into place. Assuming that is in place, the only other area that I see has become maybe a bit of a pitfall for really great teams that struggle is they kind of overbuild. They lock themselves up in their office for too long um, with their heads down building something that they think is exactly what the consumer wants. And I think too many people have learned the, the wrong lessons from Steve Jobs and how he approaches things. Usually you want feedback from your customers. So I think that, you know, the only thing I would tell founders in general is, you know, get something out there faster. Uh, the most basic version of your product should still solve a problem for someone, even if it's not polished and, and perfect. If we can take um, an example, like, do you remember when you met with Johnny from Hopin? Was he discussing about this fundamental problem that he he wants to change? How did you assess the opportunity? And maybe if you remember, like, the first meeting with Johnny, what what did you like about him? What did you think that he can learn? Well, Johnny had literally all of the ingredients, and it's it's just rare. So he had real purpose. He had a debilitating illness that meant he couldn't go to a tech events. And he thought, this is crazy. I'm in tech. Why can't I go to events virtually, digitally? So he had a reason for doing that. He put a version of the product out there way before it was ready and ran an AppSumo campaign to test it and see if there was market demand. Turns out there was a lot of demand even before COVID. And then his first versions of his product were stitching together various APIs. You know, to answer your question, Johnny came in strong purpose, which reflected the product that he showed us, you know, he, he pushed it out early, got some feedback. So when he came in, even though he was raising a seed round of financing, you know, he came in with data, it wasn't a lot of data, but it was just enough data to say, oh yeah, that like that hypothesis you have as a founder seems to be showing up in your early traction data. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'd say he did. What were the concerns? So still like putting the, the investor hat, you see a great entrepreneur solving a real problem uh, and you kind of see some data pointing into the right direction. Uh, what, what were the concerns? The concern, I mean, the concerns were probably more at the time that it was just very early. You know, he hadn't really built that much of the product. It was a still pretty bare bones product. It was a sole founder. I don't think in and of itself a bad thing, but it does mean there's more risk because if a founder, you know, struggles to scale or gets overwhelmed with the pressure, you don't have a co-founder to fall onto, fall back onto. You know, for that one, that wasn't one where we sort of sat and thought, mm, there's all these things that could go wrong. We left that meeting. I huddled with my partners and we gave him a term sheet 24 hours later on a Saturday. So yeah, I think that's one where it was just like really special founder, huge, huge market that's really inefficient and a pretty cool product. Uh, so we just wanted to lean in as fast as we could. Yeah, yeah, it kind of seems that it was a great decision. Uh, it turns out. <laughs> turns out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then also like maybe another example. Do you remember actually when you met uh, Lawrence from Tier? I do. Yeah. I think it's both Johnny and Lawrence. They're like two of my favorite people in general. But first, I mean, they also had an element of being slightly uh, overly confident you know, in those, in that first pitch. I wouldn't say arrogant, but very confident. And I, I remember it's, it's funny because I was still fairly new to being an investor when I met Lawrence. And he just came into the meeting and he said, we're going to raise $30 million. And I'm like, what? you haven't built anything yet. You don't have a team, you don't have products. It's, it's how are you going to raise $30 million? And this was you know, back in 2018. It wasn't really common to do that. And he said, yeah, well, this is why. And he kind of went through his vision and here's how exactly we're going to do it. And look at this team. 
I remember, you know, Lawrence was like an operational machine. He had thought through every detail of how he was going to build this business and why he was going to build the business. And, you know, we didn't eventually land on exactly $30 million, but it was a very, very big series A round um, that we did. I think the biggest at the time that uh, we had ever done. Yeah. But, but yeah, really strong, strong vision. So it kind of seems like it's a, it's a pattern among very successful entrepreneurs to have a clear vision on where they want to go, but then also to have quite a good plan of how to get there, or at least like how to get uh, through the first or two years that's it's kind of aligned to the vision. Like, how do you think about the combination between being very, very confident, but then also executing very well with being able to be flexible enough to change and pivot if things don't work out the way that you thought that they would? First off, the first thing I'd say is those two founders reflect the kind of founders that I'd like to work with. There are other people, there are investors that are great investors that may not have resonated with them in the same way. Um, and they might look for different qualities and founders. So I think that that is, you know, I wouldn't want people to kind of take away from this that everyone needs to behave like that. I don't think that that's, if it's not natural, don't do it. Um, but I, I happen to like founders like that. I think what the best operators in general do is they separate the kind of long-term strategy from the short-term tactics. And I think where you can get stuck is if you become really dogmatic about the tactics and those having to be the exact tactics that are going to get you to, to succeed. What you should, I think, instead do is say, this is where we're going. This is why we're going there. This is how we think we're going to go, get there. Um, and these are the first steps we're going to take towards achieving that. But be open to those steps being wrong and you know, taking a few turns along the way until you kind of figure it out. No one knows exactly the right path. And I think that's like... A, you know, that's something that you just have to kind of keep in mind. After Nordzone, now you just uh, join Lightspeed Venture Partners. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Lightspeed Venture Partners, why Lightspeed Venture Partners, and what are you looking for in the market in Europe representing Lightspeed Venture Partners or being part of the team? Yeah, so I joined Lightspeed with the, I guess the, the mandate was set up Lightspeed Europe like we've set up other regions. So Lightspeed has a great business and team in India, Southeast Asia, China, Israel, and the US. And in Europe, the approach was, we'll go after specific deals and specific topics that we're really excited about. And they've done 20 investments here, which is incredible, having really only one person full-time on the ground. The difference now, and the reason I got excited about joining was, you know, we get to build a team and look at every high growth startup at every stage, not just a handful. So that's the brief and how we're going to do that. We will build out a, you know, a team of more partners. We will you know, try to meet every founder we can uh, as early as possible. And the beauty of our fund and our fund model is, you know, if we don't catch them at seed or series A, we can, we can do it at the B or the C or even, you know, in a later growth round. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for us to kind of get involved in the best companies. And we're going to invest out of the global fund, which means we've got 30 partners in the US that are you know, specialists in certain topics or passionate about certain topics. And if there's a deal that's in Europe that we identify and they're the right partner to lead it, then we'll facilitate that and make sure the founders get the best support from the right partner wherever they are in the world. Got it. No, I mean, sounds super exciting. Uh, we're super happy you know, to also have 
Lightspeed Ventures uh, setting setting a little bit of more of a stronger base in Europe. Also, you see that Sequoia kind of came to Europe. Like, why now, Paul? Like, what what makes Europe so interesting um, at this moment in time? It's a good question, and I don't think it's a specific moment. You know, for a lot of a lot of decisions like this, I think it's it's kind of around when's the right time and when do we have the right people. So there was a bit of a, a match that I think happened there. But like I said, they've been investing in Europe for a while. It's just an opportunity to kind of take that up a notch. But you know, if you look at the region, some of the things that are happening, you know, the the amount of capital coming into Europe has grown three x over the last year. Uh, you have, I think, Europe is now. I saw the deal room stats. It's like the fastest growing unicorn market in the world, faster than China. We have more unicorn cities in Europe than you know. There's the population is twice the size of the U.S. There's 44 countries here, lots of languages. So with all of that, you have a huge market, you know, lots of complexities, lots of governments with different policies, lots of consumers. All of those things lend themselves really well to inefficient markets developing. And that's what you have across Europe in lots of sectors. And so that's like prime territory for startups. And so I think that's why wouldn't you invest big in Europe? And I think that kind of just it hit the radar and and the deals that Lightspeed invested in have grown really well. And so they just felt like, you know what, we should we should really go bigger in Europe. And that's kind of more what it, what this means. For the founders listening, what is the perfect time or the perfect industry if they want to partner up with Lightspeed? Yeah, so we are we invest early. I'd say that seed funds in my view, as, as a founder, I think seed funds do the best job at supporting companies at the seed stage. You know, Lightspeed has an incredible platform that we can use to help you recruit, market, you know, learn best practices, connect with other founders. But I really think seed funds are, are great for helping you do sort of some of the more fundamental things that you need to do when you're setting up a company. My, my recommendation to founders would be you know, partner with a seed fund at seed stage. If it's a slightly larger seed round, um, I think we could be a great partner to sit in alongside a seed fund so we can get enough ownership to make it worth it. And then when you kind of come out of that, whether it's a, a large seed or an early series A or typical series A, you know, light speed should be, you know, one of the first people, first funds that you think of calling. At that stage, we would typically see some sign of life in the product that you've built. It's, it could be lots of traction or a little bit of traction or just even some promising data from your beta testing. You should have a strong point of view about the market you're going after, you know, built out a good team, um, have a reason to, to raise the amount of capital you're trying to raise and have a really ambitious kind of vision in mind for the company. If you find like a single, uh, single founder like Johnny, would you still invest? Or now you look a little bit more holistic, like you need the CEO, the CTO, maybe a hipster. Uh, no, I think you, I, I don't think you need, I don't think there should be any formulas. I think that's the one thing that we should all take away is that like, when you try to get too programmatic or formulaic about how you build a successful company, you end up with a lot of mediocre companies. So I, yeah, I, mean, I try to be open-minded. I, I personally love finding founders that have, you know, a really interesting background and especially if they've been able to overcome hurdles along the way, I think that that tells you a lot about the founder and set that's, but I don't think there's any rules 
Absolutely. I fully agree with you. As soon as you try to put things into boxes, you're not going to see the non-obvious, interesting deals in the market. Alrighty. So, so we're uh, at the end now, just like uh, some rapid fire uh, questions. Three things that you recommend entrepreneurs wanting to build a product that users love, go tomorrow and implement, test or check. Yeah. So I would say three things. Number one, iterate fast. Number two, don't be precious. You might love a feature, but don't obsess about it and accept that it might be a bad feature. And then number three is listen, listen to your customers or your users, whoever the, the market, the products uh, built for. Got it. Uh, best book you read in the last six months and most impactful book ever. It might be, maybe it's just because of the world we live in right now, but uh, Factfulness, which you've probably read, I think everyone should read. And it's, it's a book that kind of provides data as to why we should be optimistic um, that the world is getting better. There's some really big problems in the world, but the world is generally getting better. And I think that's, for me, that's something, I don't know if I read it, by the way, I probably read it later than six months ago, but it's also probably ticks the most impactful box because it just reminds you that, you know, you don't get very far by being negative. Um, you can want things to be better, but uh, I think you have to recognize the stuff that is working and then, you know, lean into the stuff that's working as opposed to obsessing about the stuff that's not working. You need to have hope to be creative, to find solutions. Most thoughtful investor and or entrepreneur that you have met and admire? So I would go with probably Alex Chung uh, from Giphy. So he um, had just an incredible view of the world. And you know, he's, he was sort of built a platform for animated GIFs, which is you know everything about his pitch was always a bit funny. Like it's always a bit of a comedy value to it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when he sort of talks about the scale and why that medium exists and why people like to communicate with funny images and not text, it just all makes sense. Um, so whenever I have a founder that's maybe thinking about how to tell the story the best or to, you know, think about the long-term strategy, if, if he's willing, I always try to get them to talk to Alex. Got it. And any, any ask for the audience at the end? I would say if you, you know, follow me on Twitter and give me feedback on how Lightspeed is doing, things that you would like to see a top venture fund do for you in the market, even if we don't invest, uh, just let us know how we can do better. There's a lot of founders and lots of companies out there that we're never going to be able to invest in, but we feel like we're, we want to be in this together. Our, our goal is to create a market in Europe that's at least as big as the US for the, the tech community. So we want to be good citizens in that effort and not you know, not, not only for the, the few companies we can invest in directly. Hey, go Europe. We're <laughs> happy that, that you guys are actually here also raising the bar also for other investors uh, and also investing in great entrepreneurs and great company. Thank you very much, Paul, for, uh, for taking the time. Of course. Thanks so much. 